From Luminary Media and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of John Chambers and Cisco. People made the mistake of thinking that they weren't going to be affected by this. Many of them did collapse. If you can imagine, 25% of my customers didn't stop ordering. They disappeared. Companies that were spending billions of dollars with us and other players were out of business in two quarters. How John Chambers went from being a sales rep at IBM to becoming the CEO of a company that at one point was the world's most valuable, Cisco. So if you think about the entire span of human history, huge, earth-shattering innovations don't actually happen all that often. Think about something like the stone tool. Our hominin ancestors nailed that one about three million years ago. But it would be another two million years before they'd figure out the controlled use of fire. Fast forward almost a million years after that point, and you get agriculture. 13,000 years later, the printing press. And each time, those innovations changed everything that happened afterwards. If you were a scribe in, say, 1439, or if you ran a network of freelance scribes, Johannes Gutenberg's machine was about to put you out of business. Now, think about the last few decades of computing history. The changes, the innovations, the speed. It's mind-blowing, totally unprecedented in human history. Compared to the past, we've gone from mainframe computers to the digital age at the speed of light. And what it's meant for tech companies has been instability. One day, you might be the most powerful player in the industry, and a few years later, you might be gone. And to survive, you almost have to predict the next big innovation, years before it comes. That's the lesson John Chambers learned and then applied after decades in the business. As a junior sales rep at IBM back in the 70s, he watched how the company struggled to transition from mainframes to mini-computers. And then at Wang Laboratories, one of the biggest names in mini-computers, he saw how the founder, Ann Wang, dismissed the internet as a passing fad. So when he became the CEO at Cisco in the mid-1990s, John had to figure out the next thing that might upend everything they were doing. And that's precisely how he was able to, at one point, turn it into the world's most valuable company. But John's journey to Silicon Valley and the world of computers wasn't obvious. He was actually born in West Virginia a few years after the end of World War II. And at that time, West Virginia was an industrial powerhouse. Oh, it was it was like that's where the world was was happening. Uh, many people in the U.S. might have a view of West Virginia of today, and but in the 50s, it was the chemical center of the world and the coal uh, center of the world, and uh, FMC and Carbide and DuPont and the most brilliant engineers in the world. They had their headquarters and locations there. Uh, the energy was unbelievable, uh, and it was just like the whole world was going on around me. Very exciting. Uh, so you also had outdoors and activities of beautiful rivers and lakes and streams and fishing and hunting. And and uh, I was very lucky to grow up in West Virginia, very proud of it. When you were a kid, did Charleston feel like uh, a booming kind of techno-centric place? 
a techno center? No, it was not a a technology hub. It was more of a business hub, a uh, center for healthcare, uh, state government, uh, regional transportation. So I guess initially when you were a young man, your idea was mm-hmm. to become a lawyer because you, you went to law school, right? Well, I, I did go to law school. I never intended to practice. I love school. I went to school for nine and a half years, got three degrees. I uh, really enjoyed uh, uh, learning and enjoy that. I went to law school to learn about business because I felt uh, you'd have to have an understanding of law uh, very often, depending on the amount of government intervention or not, uh, to be successful in business. Uh, and I started at Duke with electrical engineering and then transferred to West Virginia and then out to MBA school at Indiana. My goal all the way through it was to uh, work for a small business or a medium-sized business. So you graduate with an MBA, I think, in 1975, and your first job is with IBM. IBM at the time, probably the gold standard, right? That's where everybody probably wanted to work. Well, it was, Guy, in some ways and others. This this will surprise you, given my huge involvement in tech and so many areas from cybersecurity to social media to data center evolution, virtualization, digitization. Uh, uh, I didn't really like technology in school. In fact, uh, very often I'd trade with my fellow students for them to help me run my computer programs, and I'd help them do their business analysis. And when I got a request from one of my peers that I played a fair amount of basketball with, Steve Nesbitt. Uh, he said, John, come up and interview at IBM. I know you're not going to take a, a job here because I know you're headed to either Chicago or New York and a large company, but it would mean a lot to me if you did this and it'd make me look good. And I said, Steve, I love you, buddy, but uh, I really don't like technology and uh, I, I don't think that's in the cards. And he said, I got two tickets to the basketball game. And I said, I'll be there. And when I went there, the IBM manager taught me something I never forgot. I view technology as stuff geeky people do, and and, uh, he showed me how technology could completely transform business, and he showed me how to use mainframes and computers that IBM built to make businesses more effective, and he uh, looked at me and said, you're still not going to join us? And I said, no, (laughs) and uh, he said, what's your best offer? And I told him what it was in Chicago and uh, New York, and he said, I'll guarantee you double that next year, and he had my attention. So I was fortunate enough to go to IBM. Uh, Wait, where where did you you move to? uh, To Indianapolis, uh, great city there in Indiana, great basketball. And what was your job at IBM? I was a sales guy. I sold. They put me up in Muncie, Indiana, in the northern part of Indianapolis. And their goal was to let me make mistakes my my first year or two of selling in a remote territory, then bring me back to Indianapolis and put me in the bigger accounts. So you were uh, an IBM salesman, uh, and you Mm -hmm. stayed there for quite a while, for for about uh, six years. And then I I guess around 82... um, uh, you ended up having a, a chance encounter with with a guy named Ann Wang, who ran a company called Wang. Uh, how did how did you come across him? Well, it's interesting. I I began to watch uh, IBM try to build a what was a mini computer at that time, and they built it like 
the complexity of a mainframe. And there was another company called Wang uh, that was focused more on ease of use and solving areas of office automation as well as many computer applications. And and just to clarify, because you know some people might hear mini computer, they don't know what that means. I mean, this is essentially a less expensive computer than a giant mainframe, but it wasn't a personal computer. You wouldn't put a mini computer in a in a household. This is still a business computer that was frankly pretty big, right? Yes, it was. It was you know, maybe a tenth the size of a mainframe. But for your audience, think of the original generation of computing as mainframes. IBM clearly dominated that. Think of the next generation, mini computers, digital equipment, DEC, if you will. Uh, Wang, Data General dominated that. And then think of PCs. You know the PC players, Microsoft, uh, IBM, Dell, and then the Internet players. And now the digital players. So hmm. think of it almost as five generations of computing technology evolving, getting them easier to use, smaller, and much more powerful. So Wang, tell me about An Wang. What, what, what was it about him that impressed you? Just about everything. Uh, I'm really good at math. I am terrible in English, as you've already figured out. I talk too fast. My wife is a speech therapist. She calls me her only failure. Uh, but he he was first just very, very smart, and he could translate ideas to products remarkably well. I could have a business case in front of him and a calculator with me, and he could do the numbers quicker in his head than I could do it knowing the business case. And then he could figure out how to use that technology to make processes work in the office smoother. Everything from typing, using an old world phrase, to uh, data applications. And uh, uh, he built a good team around him, a lot of very, very talented people. Uh, he was a very humble man. He he lived in the same house the entire time that uh, I knew him, even though he could have had much more expensive houses. And I'd never taken an interview while I was at IBM. I liked the company a lot, but I was getting concerned about its its future and its direction. And I got one phone call to interview uh, at Wang. And Canley, he laid out very much like the original IBM uh, leader that hired me what the future of Wang could be. and uh, So explain what, what Wang was doing. Was it essentially selling computer technology to businesses? Uh, yes, it was. It was uh, selling more a distributed system of computer technology, a mini computer, if you will, and it sold office automation. So it was selling both technology and the terms that you and I and your, your listeners would view as data processing or IT, as well as automated the uh, jobs in the office uh, that used to be more in the typing, administrative, uh, fouling type of role. So it, it did the combination of the two. This was a time when the Boston area was kind of booming as a tech hub. All these sort of companies around Route 128, there was Wang, there was DEC, DEC. Um, oh, yeah. What do you remember about that time? Well, it was a time of explosive growth. Uh, it was a time that we were uh, the IT center of the world. We saw a Silicon Valley develop, but we thought those are kind of those very unique Californians, and we didn't feel threatened by it. We should have. Uh, on the positive side, we built the greatest IT companies of that decade. A great working relationship with MIT. It was kind of the Stanford uh, of that geographic area in terms of startups and tremendously talented engineers came out of it. So it was the IT center of the world. Hmm. 
So you're you're working at Wang um, in Boston, and this is the late '80s, and mm-hmm. Wang is doing really well, right? I mean, I mean, 1988. I mean, I think it hit like three billion dollars in revenue. Mm-hmm. I mean, back then, was Wang one of the most significant computer companies in America? The answer is yes. It would be what you would compare to a a Microsoft or a Facebook or a Google or an Apple in that terms. Wow. This was the wave after the mainframes. Hmm. So you're working at Wang. Obviously, things are great. Yes, it was. But in a matter of, what, two years, from, from 1988 to 1990, Wang went from $3 billion in revenue to reporting a $700 million loss in, in a year. What happened? Well, if, if I were to say one of my major lessons learned is market transitions wait for no one. And when they occur, they occur over a period of time. But the impact can be felt toward the back end of that time very quickly. So West Virginia, over a period of time, because we didn't change from chemical industry and coal, got left behind. Boston, because we didn't change from many computers to the Internet, et cetera, got lost behind, left behind. And Wang kept doing the right thing way too long in terms of staying uh, with the mini computer. And Dr. Wang, when I, I challenged him, and I can remember sitting in his office, and I felt we needed to move to the PC and to the Internet, and I was pushing him pretty hard, and it was the only time that when I pushed Dr. Wang, he ever got mad at me, and I could still see his hand shaking uh, uh, that he was explained to me he'd already built a PC and that the Internet wasn't going to be the direction as much, uh, et cetera, on it. And uh, uh, at West Virginia, I could not have made a difference. Hmm. Uh, it, uh, I, at Wang, I could have, and I didn't. And because I backed hmm. down on that, I could have had a role of perhaps getting us to make the transition and not have the outcome we did. So Wang, the, the company, just didn't think that PCs – I mean this is the, really the beginning of the PC revolution or, or actually it's already underway, right? Because in the 80s, you already had this sort of the PC clones. But Wang did not see that coming in time? No, it was actually the reverse. Dr. Wang saw it coming too early. And being too early in technology is just as bad as being too late. He built a amazing PC, and uh, nobody bought it. Hmm. So he was so early that when it, the market later developed, he thought he had already been there, and it wasn't going to take off. And we stayed as a hardware company as opposed to thinking of ourselves as a software company. Hmm. Uh, and those two were, were, as it turned out, fatal mistakes. You were... In, in 1990, the, um, the executive vice president at Wang. And but what I'm trying to understand is how did it go to $700 million in, in losses in just a couple of years? I mean, did, did the orders just stop coming in? Well, the market transitioned. And this is what I think a lot of people tend to think, well, clearly what happened in one year was their management must have been asleep at the switch. Yeah. It was we missed the transitions in the five years before that, and it showed up later. So the writing was on the wall uh, within three or four years after I joined Wang that the next transition of high tech would be to the Internet and the PCs. And you compete on transitions. You don't compete against uh, your competitors. Yeah. And we, we missed that transition and paid a terrible price for it. You say we missed that transition, and I appreciate that you you sort of consider yourself part of the you know the group that should be held responsible. But I'm wondering what what is it that you personally 
didn't do or didn't say at the time when you should have said it? I was pretty clear in my my thoughts that we needed to change. And uh, Dr. Wang trusted me. And uh, uh, you know, he trusted me completely, and but he he had been so successful, and he had patents and degrees, and hmm. when I pushed him and he got upset with me, I backed off. I should have pushed harder, in a more general way, and asked to come back and share more views, which I think he would have done. Hmm. And so you often learn more from your mistakes in life than you do your successes. So I view that as one that that I did miss. Did other mm. people contribute to it? Absolutely. And does the CEO in it? Absolutely. But I could have made a difference there. It, that year, 1990, when Wang really started to collapse, that also was the same year that Ann Wang died of cancer. Um, I have to imagine that that also contributed to the collapse of the company because this very charismatic guy whose name was on the computers, he was out of the picture. That would be the observation of an outsider looking in. But Hmm. no, our mistakes were made several years before that. Hmm. Uh, Was that an impact that probably accelerated our issue? Yes. But then we made a bad decision and the CEO came in and it was a different culture. And it was a cultural mismatch and candidly bad misexecution, which compounded the problems. And so the missing the window and then secondly, you only get one chance to to fix a company when it really gets into trouble. We missed that one chance. So essentially, Wang had an opportunity to become like a Microsoft or a Lotus, for example. Had it shifted its focus to software? Yes. But here's the point, Guy, that I think is important for your listeners. Almost no company stays on top more than a decade. Hmm. And very few companies have the courage as well as can execute off that courage to move from their core technology to a whole new category. IBM survived but never was the power after mainframes. Uh, the Many computer companies completely disappeared. Uh, the Intels of the world, which were so successful, uh, uh, really never got beyond their core products of the computer chips, if you will. Even today, that's where their growth and their profitability is. Microsoft has probably been an exception to that with what Satya has done on the evolution of the company uh, from the PC and software into the cloud. But most companies do not make that transition. And that's one of the things that I, I try to teach when I talk to young business leaders or CEOs of large companies is you compete on getting the next transition of business model and technology change. And if you don't, using today's words, you get Amazon or Googled or Netflix. Yeah. So you are um, at the company in 1990. Dr. Wang is dying. The company is just hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging. I have to imagine there was a sense of crisis, certainly in the C-suites. A little bit. This is where, even though I made a major mistake on not pushing harder about the transition of the company, my parents early on taught me not to panic under pressure. Uh, in terms of when I almost drowned at six years old in rapids, and my dad saved me, and then taught me why you don't panic uh, in those scenarios. So. It was, to me, uh, more of one of where do we put our priorities, and you only had one chance to turn it. We made a decision as a company to focus on expense cutting and continuing to do what we'd done before as opposed to make a bold move to where the market's going Mm. 
uh, re-level set the market and go for it. And again, uh, you either disrupt or you get disrupted. So the team at Wang, the, the management team at Wang decides to cut expenses, which we know what that means. It means layoffs. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, you were sort of charged with leading this. You had to actually lay off thousands of employees, um, I think, p- pretty close to, to, to Christmas time. What do you remember about that time? Well, it's the worst thing you do in your life. And mm. uh, uh, you know it's going to impact people's lives. You second-guess yourself. How could you have prevented it? I had only a segment of the sales. I had the U.S. sales at that time, but every group had to cut back in headcount consistently. And so almost every holiday, we were planning for the next layoff. And so what I remember is the pain that went with that, the frustration. But again, it was another key lesson learned. Uh, If you're going to make changes, do them once, do it aggressively, do it quickly, paint the picture for what you're going to look like when you come out of it and share it and cut deeper and make changes more aggressively than you think you need to Hmm. because you only get that one window to change. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Most of us spend our days wondering where the time has gone, wishing we had just one more hour in the day to go for a run, take a nap, read a book, be more present for a friend, or all of the above. And the best way to make sure there's time for what's important is to, well, spend the time figuring out what that is. Therapy can help you figure out what's important so you can spend more of your life doing it. Therapy isn't just for those who have experienced trauma. It's also so helpful for learning how to set boundaries and empowering you to become the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule, and totally online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire so you can get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you're not totally connecting, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com wisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash wisdom. So you are tasked with a, a big layoff, and you essentially, I guess, laid yourself off. You, you also resigned that year. D- did, you, did you step down because you, you felt like there was no future there for you at that point? Uh, during that full year of doing five layoffs, I lost faith in the last layoff that we weren't going where we needed to go and that this was uh, delaying an inevitable outcome uh, with no plan to, to change it. So you stepped down in 1990. I think you're almost 40 years old or maybe you, you just turned 40 years old, um, kind of out of work from a company that clearly has is in this sort of disastrous position. A few years later, it would declare bankruptcy. Uh, were you were you worried about what you were going to do next? Uh, it was interesting, and this is this is a mistake made for your viewers. Uh, it's a lot easier to get a job when you have a job, <laughs> and so before you jump, think about: uh, uh, Do you want to uh, uh, get your next job lined up before you leave? For me, I, I felt I couldn't do that because I can't be telling people have faith, and I'm I'm making changes in the headcount, but but uh, and at the same time looking for a job myself. So I was in a little bit different scenario, but I was pretty sure I'd get a job quickly. And uh, so I sent out the resumes and told my wife things will be fine and kids. And uh, uh, I waited for the job offers to come in. And it was rather humbling because none came in. 
nothing came in initially. Nothing came in. Do you think that was because people sort of looked at your resume and thought, this guy is just like jumping ship from this disastrous company. Like, why would we want to hire him? Was that? Do you think that's how people saw your resume? Uh, perhaps, but as a leader, uh, your currency is your track record, the trust you develop, and your relationships. Fast forward to 90 days later, I had 22 job offers, 21 were through relationships hmm. and people opening doors for me. But the first 45 days were so lonely. I mean, so lonely. So 1991, uh, you would eventually do uh, get a job offer from Cisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and presumably, you, you move your family out from Boston to the Silicon Valley. Well, I said, let me test the water first <laughs> to see if I like it. And uh, the Internet was relatively new in terms of concepts. And and, you know, and just a, a side note, I would have never got the offer at Cisco except how I treated somebody almost 10 years before at IBM. And then later when they were at Wang, uh, they were at Cisco. And they the valley's very small. People know who are moving and what's going on. It's very networked. And uh, he called my wife at home when I was out interviewing on the West Coast and said, I've got the job for John. He, he needs to come out here to Cisco, and we're looking for the next CEO. And uh, there's a good CEO here who, who John could learn from and make the transition. My resume by itself did not get me my next job. It was my track record and the trust I developed with people and the relationships that I had that uh, opened this opportunity for me once again, just like at IBM. Describe what the state of affairs was at Cisco. Was it a big company? Was it small? Was it a big player? What What was it like? Well, it was it was exciting, but it was almost out of control. You go into their location, and uh, uh, there were 400 people at this time and 70 million in sales. And I go in, and they were growing so fast, they were out of space in the, the, the building. And they put me in literally a closet. There was kind of a telephone switching closet on it with a, a desk makeshift over to the side. And I'm listening to these phone calls go through, click, 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 and the transmission's going on. And I'm looking out, and there are boxes everywhere and people hustling. And I'm beginning to wonder, should I call my wife and tell her I made a mistake? (laughs) But it was exciting. Growing out of control, you can imagine growth of uh, a slow year was 60%. A good year was 100% growth, doubling the headcount every 12 to 20 months uh, in terms of the company size. And in 1990, I guess, is it fair to say that Cisco was primarily in the router business, right? It was it was in the business of just connecting computers to each other. Correct. And it was more in the really techie segment of connecting computers and connecting people often at universities or research groups or governments uh, together. Uh, so it was not just a single product company, primarily a router, which was kind of think of a router as the uh, intersection points for directing traffic lights, stoplights do across a, a region. Uh, but it was mainly for techies uh, uh, in terms of the focus. So a big decision was taken at Cisco, I think around 1993, when it made its first acquisition. It was a company called Crescendo Communications. And this was a company that sold network switches which really had an impact on what Cisco then did. Can you just explain briefly, what, is, what does that mean? What is a network switch? 
Well, uh, a switch is different than a router. Think of the router doing this over the wide area uh, across the country or around the world, and think of a switch often doing it in the data center within a building, and switching became much bigger force than routing, almost two to one in terms of volume, and we then got these products to play together, which would allow business to produce outcomes, productivity, more sales, uh, et cetera, uh, at a faster pace, and so we we sold business transformation. Uh, We didn't sell routers and switches. Explain who Cisco's customers were, primarily businesses, right, that that had networking needs and needed the technology to to route data, I guess. Correct. So basically, we would sell to the very deep in the bowels of a CIO IT organization would sell to the infrastructure, the networking engineer who would make a decision on which products to put into their environment. So you become CEO of Cisco in 1995. Mm-hmm. And my suspicion is that at that time it was just exploding in growth. It was just growth, 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 growth. Is that is that what was going on? Yeah, it was uh, growing at probably 60% per year on the average year, maybe 70 wow. Uh But the common theme here is it had been so easy just to keep doing what we had done and stay in routing and switching and stay primarily in the U.S. And yet in 95, we began to make big bets about new markets. We bet in China on 1995. It was the first big bet I made as a CEO. But I'd been at Wang Laboratories, and I I knew the power that was going to come out of China and how the country was remarkably technology savvy and hungry for technologies. And so I bet on China in 95 when almost all of my peers did not, and it turned out to be a very, very good bet for us. We also moved out of enterprise businesses into what you call service providers, the AT&Ts, the Verizons, the uh, Comcasts of the world. And then we moved from selling data to selling transmission of voice and then video. And that's, that's why we broke away from our peers throughout the 90s. By the year 2000, Cisco was like one of the three largest companies in the world. Its, its market cap reached like half a trillion dollars. That's correct. And, and you are the CEO of this company. Um, did you think at that time... Wow, you know, I'm I'm really good at what I'm great at what I do. I'm I'm invincible. <laughs> well, I think we get a little bit more confident when things go well yeah. and a little bit too hard on ourselves when it goes the other way. I've never referred myself as invincible, but I did think as a company we were out executing our peers and we were moving into new markets that would continue to give us very good growth. Hmm. So we felt that we'd move into other market adjacencies, continue to acquire other companies. We were for a very short period of time the most valuable company in the world. Uh, our customers, our employees, our shareholders, our partners were pretty excited. Uh, we were on a tremendous roll, and first week in December, we were going at 70%, and, and we made the mistake of saying this next quarter looks very good. We'd never missed a quarter in our history, uh, and this was one that I did miss. Uh, by uh, third week in January, we were minus uh, 40% growth, which I thought was mathematically impossible. We'd never been below plus 40% growth in our history. 2001, the dot-com bubble bursts, and Cisco... Cisco watches its sales go from 70% growth to a 30% drop. The share price would plummet from $80 to $11. I know your dad taught you not to panic, but were you thinking at that time, 
you know, this is history repeating itself. I have been in this movie at Wang. Well, it's one of the elements, I thought. Um, you know, and I'm pretty good during times of crisis, taking a step back, taking the emotion out of it, as my dad taught me to do. Then dealing with this, just like you would an illness in the body, determine how much was self-inflicted and how much of it was market-driven. What happened was, first week in December, everything looked great. And our numbers, Guy, if you can imagine, I mean, our numbers, we knew exactly what we did every day of every month, the prior year, the year before that. We could draw correlations based upon our pipeline of how many activities we were working, and we could forecast remarkably accurately what we were going to do, not just for a month, but for a quarter and beyond. And we tracked this on a daily basis, watching for any slight temperature change that would indicate either an opportunity or a problem. We became too dependent upon the numbers, and even though the stock markets were dropping uh, during uh, the 2000 time period pretty dramatically, including our stock, uh, we did not see any business momentum change. And then when I saw January start to occur, I went out and cleaned my schedule for uh, almost two weeks, and I traveled around the world talking to key customers, and I came back from the trip believing that this was a huge issue that was about to hit us. And at this time, nobody had said, other than the stock market dropping, that this was a huge downturn hmm. and called up my executives and said, be in the office at 6.30 the next day. And I shared with them, even before I shared with the board, that uh, I felt we were in what I called a 100-year flood. I probably should have used a different word, but we had to move quickly. And if we didn't, our survival was in doubt. So March 2001, you decide that you have to make big changes because things are not going well. Um, in order to stabilize the company, you had to cut expenses, you had to write down things, you had to you had to lay people off, right? That's correct. I never thought I'd ever have to do another layoff. Uh, uh, it, was, it was very difficult to go through, but this is where you have to take a step back. And it's when leadership is really lonely, but that's, that's what they expect out of the CEO. That's your job. Uh, we had companies that were every bit as strong as we were, and almost none of them came through anywhere near as well as we did through this downturn. Do I wish I'd been able to avoid it? I would have given anything to avoid it. I mean, was the company at a, at a place where it could have collapsed like Wang, or, or was it sort of in a better position? No, we could have collapsed. And this is where people who made the mistake of thinking that they weren't going to be affected by this, many of them did collapse. If you can imagine, 25% of my customers didn't stop ordering. They disappeared. Wow. Companies that were spending billions of dollars with us and other players were out of business in two quarters. Hmm. And so it was a 100-year flood. My tough time was in making the decision to make the changes. That was the hard part. That's when you do the soul searching because you realize you are in part betting 50,000 people's jobs, uh, your shareholders' money, uh, your partners, your customers' trust in you on can you make the right decision at this time. So as, as you began this new strategy in 2001, um, how, how long did it start to take before you saw a light at the end of the tunnel before you started to turn a corner? I thought it was just two months. We had all the changes done in 51 days, and day 52 we started gaining share. Uh, you know, and once we made the changes, 
as painful as they were for everyone. The speed with which we made it, how we positioned ourselves for the future, how we communicated that to our customers. Remember, at this time, we were saying this was the dot-com bubble, this 100-year flood's upon us. Many people did not believe it was coming or they thought it was unique to Cisco. And so uh, I was actually very comfortable after we made the changes. Uh, I watched how well our team executed. I watched how our customers responded to it. I watched how our employees pulled together as a family to do it. Uh, we took care of the employees that we laid off in ways that there were a number of articles written about, about how we treated people to the best of our ability, very friendly, like we'd like to be treated if we were on the other side of it. And you could see the company actually get stronger through the challenges. I view it as my toughest management year and potentially my worst year uh, ever. Jack Welch, who I'd got to know during the 90s, uh, had a different view on it. He was so funny because in the 90s, Jack was the, the best business leader in the world. I think very few people would disagree with that during the 80s and 90s. And he said, John, you've got a good company. And I knew he was teaching me a lesson. I said, all right, Jack, what does it take to have a great company? Because we were about to become the most valuable company in the world. Everything was going right. And he said, a near-death experience. Hmm. I looked at him, and I understood what he was saying intellectually, but I didn't process it completely. And uh, he called me up at the end of 2001 unexpectedly, and he said, John, I got good news for you. And I said, all right, Jack, I need some. Uh, people are questioning, can I run the company? My stock's really down. I've been through the most painful year of my life, a lot of soul searching during this. And as you know, leadership is really lonely. And he said, I know that. But he said, this is your best leadership year ever. He said, you navigated through this in a way that your peers didn't. You made the tough decisions. And I said, Jack, I don't, I don't feel like it was at all. It was definitely the most painful. And you're probably going to be the only person that ever says that. <laughs> he laughed and he said, that is true. <laughs> So when you went through that that rough situation in, in, in 2000, 2001, how did that inform you when the next big financial crash, the crisis of 2007, 2008, were you better prepared at Cisco to weather that? Did you see that coming? I mean, no one saw it coming, but did you? Oh, we saw it coming. Uh, hmm. uh, this, is, this is the mistake I made before. I had been way too dependent upon our data. In 2007, uh, my number's going to be a little bit off because I I don't have them memorized, obviously, but our business was growing about 30%, a little bit more than that. Not bad for a really big company. And our profits were record profits. And in the summer of 2007, we were about to announce a, a very good quarter above expectations. And our guidance for the next quarter was going to be above expectations too. But in our data, we saw that the top U.S. banks slowed down their purchasing versus their normal run rates all at the same time. Mm. And so even though the numbers in total looked very good, there was something wrong with this. And I called the CEOs and I said, hey, what's going on? And they said, ah, it's a little bit of nervousness in the market, not a big issue. But this is where connecting the dots and having seen the movie before, this to me was a big issue. And uh, on the conference call, I shared with the market that that while our numbers were good and our forecast for the next quarter is good, there's something wrong in the financial community, and we think this could be uh, serious to very serious. Uh, we adjusted our spin rates appropriately. Uh, we prepared as though there might be a, a next challenge. And uh, about nine months later, there clearly was. 
And when that hit, this time we were ready. And at a time where I got criticized and candidly fairly lost a, a pretty fair amount of money extending credit to customers and inventory levels in 1999 and 2000, we actually gave credit to the automotive companies because they were in real trouble and they'd always been good customers for us. We gave credit to them to use our technology at a time no one else did. And uh, uh, so not only did we come through it stronger, we used our financial strengths to help our customers who'd always been there for us. And we became the number one player in the automotive industry as a whole. And they remembered that after they came out of it. So we navigated through that one pretty smoothly. But it was because we'd seen the movie before or seen it several times, but one that was remarkably uh, similar to it. Hmm. So I I wonder when you you reflect on how you lead an organization, right? And you led a huge organization. This goes a huge organization. Um, how do you think about your role primarily? I mean, do you think about your role as the leader of the employees, as the leader of the board, as sort of the guy who's got to talk to the shareholders? Um, what? How do you prioritize who comes first? Ha, ah, it's a great one. Uh, my view on this, not, not all... I'm I'm sure uh, a lot of people might disagree, is I think it's the same regardless of leadership of a small company or a big company or leadership in general. Uh, The first uh, thing in terms of who comes first, uh, you've got to treat them equal. So who comes first? It's your customers, your employees, your shareholders, and your partners, and they need to be equal. Second, your role of the CEO. Only four things. First is vision and strategy for the company. Second is to develop, retain, recruit, and at times change the management team to implement that vision and strategy. Third is culture, which I did not understand as an early on CEO how important it is, but it's one of the first things I go to when I coach the young CEOs. You never have a great company without a strong culture. You may or may not like the culture of the company, i.e. a Cisco or an Oracle or a Microsoft or what you've seen recently with some challenging companies like an Uber. But you never have a strong company without a strong culture. And then the fourth element, the CEO, she or he has to really be good at communicating. You obviously get that team around you to help you implement it. You never win by yourself. It's real easy to beat an individual player uh, or in a CEO who does it by themselves. The team that's hard to beat is a team that complements each other, that has diversity in thoughts and ideas and gender and other issues, that has the courage to outline a vision, and then to really go for it as a team. And you know, to the point you asked me indirectly earlier, did we at Cisco, did my Salesforce, did I want them to believe we were unbeatable? You betcha. And most of the time we were. That's That contributed a lot to our ability to break away uh, versus our peers. But we were also realistic and humble, far from perfect, but you know, this is kind of the playbook we run, and that's what I'm trying to do with my startups of today. John, do you, do you think that you were born a leader, or do you think you learned how to become a leader? You know, it's a question I get asked a lot. Um, I was dyslexic, and uh, if you haven't been there or if you haven't had a family member there, uh, it means that you have trouble reading, you read backwards, uh, you come across in school of, of not being smart, uh, kids laugh at you when you read. And so uh, the last thing I was thinking about that time, could I be a leader? I was just thinking, yeah, maybe I'm not very smart and, and my options in life may be limited. Uh, no, I did not think I was a leader at that time. And 
even when maybe I was indirectly leading, uh, whether it was building sports teams in colleges and intramurals or uh, groups or people willing to follow me or when they got into trouble, give me a call and say, give me the advice. I didn't really think of myself as a leader. And then I got lucky in terms of opportunities presented to me. And I believe believe our luck often has to do when preparation meets opportunity. And you know, guy, I had a front row seat in all the technology transitions that occurred, uh, and almost no one else that I know in the industry has had that. So, leadership—it's it's a combination of skills, development, desire, stubbornness, humbleness, getting knocked on your tails, and being resilient. And it's why most leaders, at least in businesses today, don't stay in the job more than five or six years. It's really hard. Uh, in tremendous pressure, but you also have to reinvent yourself. And if you don't reinvent yourself in your company, uh, you get left behind. That's John Chambers. John stepped down as CEO of Cisco in 2015. He now mostly focuses on his venture capital company, JC2 Ventures, and on advising startups and heads of state. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built It Productions. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.